Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And welcome to BioEats World, our show where we talk about how biology is breaking out of the lab and clinic and into our daily lives, and on the verge of revolutionizing our entire world in ways we're only just beginning to imagine. So speaking of revolutions, today we're talking about the revolutions in cancer treatment. So let's talk about what we mean by that. Well, in this episode, which was recorded at one of our summit events, I talk with Gary Reedy, CEO of the American Cancer Society, Jonathan Lim, CEO of Eraska, a biotech company with the mission of erasing cancer, and Jorge Conde, A16Z general partner, all about the major revolutions we've had in treating that very old human foe of cancer. We talk about the fundamental nature of cancer, what we know, and what we know about how to stop it, the history of cancer treatment, and major paradigm shifts from early surgery to the birth of chemotherapy and radiation, to precision genetic medicine and targeted therapies, to finally what the next major new tools and revolutions at the bleeding edge of cancer treatment will be. So tell me about your favorite moment from this episode. I have to say I loved that in the entire scope of this conversation, which is a huge medical history about such a heavy and important and serious topic, we somehow managed to work in a Ghostbusters reference. I love that. I also love the discussion of all the low-tech, low-hanging fruit solutions to cancer that we could implement right now if we wanted to. That was really surprising to me. Absolutely. The conversation starts by looking at where cancer treatment began. So let's just start by talking about where we've come in terms of cancer treatment. If we look at, you know, the kind of landscape of the history of treating this disease, where did we where did we begin? What were the major breakthroughs and and where are we now? If you just look back, say, 150 years ago, before the advent of anesthesia and antibiotics, um, if someone had cancer, they literally would be strapped down and surgeons would try and hack out the tumor. I mean, that that was it, basically. They had very little understanding of what was driving the cancer. In fact, um, back in the days of Galen, they thought it was black bile. And so they they literally had no idea at a cellular or biochemical, much less molecular, uh, understanding of of what was uh, causing cancer and driving the cancer the way we have that understanding today. And so it wasn't until the advent of anesthesia that surgery came into its own in the 1890s under William Halstead. And at that time, they would do these radical surgeries like radical mastectomy, where they would remove not just the breast, but also all of the adjacent tissue, including the chest wall. So that was a little too much, but it really was the renaissance of, of the surgical approach And then radiation therapy came about in um, the 1900s. So the very first case of using X-ray radiation to zap out tumor of of, uh, the breast, for instance, happened in 1896. Oh, I had no idea. It was so early. Yeah. And what was the... What was the thinking behind that? Where was the connection where they thought x-rays Well, may? they just noticed that x-rays were able to kill rapidly dividing cells. And mm-hmm. so they thought cancer seems to be growing very rapidly. And so let's deploy this technology, which was cutting edge at the time. This was sort of pre-atomic age. And then they applied that to uh, a patient with breast cancer who had otherwise no other available treatments. And um, she actually did quite well after that. Oh my gosh. And so that was the birth of uh, radiation therapy in the 1900s. If you think about surgery and radiation therapy, they're largely local treatments. 
to uh, localized disease. And so it works really well if a patient's tumor hasn't spread. Mm -hmm. But if it's already spread, then no matter how deeply you resect the tissue, um, the patient won't do well. And so um, it wasn't until the 1940s when Dr. Sidney Farber started to pioneer the use of antifolate therapy uh, for children with certain types of leukemia. Mm -hmm. And so this was for an acute, aggressive, lymphoblastic form of, of leukemia where it was basically uniformly fatal. And uh, Dr. Farber uh, worked with some scientists on uh, administering antifolate therapy to, to kids and found that he could put those kids into remission. Mm. And so this was the first administration of systemic therapy and really launched the whole era of uh, chemotherapy and systemic treatment. And so that's what I call the first revolution of cancer treatment, which is really right. this multidisciplinary use of surgery, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy. And today, a lot of treatments like the targeted therapies and immunotherapy don't apply to every single patient. Right. And so it still is a, a mainstay of therapy for certain types of tumors. And in fact, it, here in the United States, we're very lucky to have access to this because there's a number of people in developing countries that don't even have access to chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. How old is the American Cancer Society? When did that come up in, this, in the context of these? We were founded in 1913 in New York City by literally a group of physicians and a group of lay people that wanted to do something to start raising the awareness of this disease called cancer and to help people understand things that they could do to help reduce their risk of getting it. So shortly after that first x-ray, that's really interesting. In uh, 1943, Mary Lasker, who was a New York socialite, really got involved and she was uh, extremely frustrated that in 1943, the budget for the American Cancer Society was $100,000. Uh -huh. She could not believe that at that time there was more money being raised you know, through March of Dimes than for cancer, and cancer is becoming such a growing problem. So she got herself on the board, invited a lot of her friends to be on the board, and in 1946 raised $4 million. And she also said, you're never going to control this disease or have an impact on it unless you do research. So, you know, thankfully to Mary Lasker, we've been involved in basically some form or fashion uh, in, in every major cancer breakthrough that's occurred. Cancer is a disease of DNA, right, where, you know, cells have become deprogrammed or have become destabilized. And to me, one of the most fascinating ways to think about cancer is you know this idea um, that Weinberg and Hanahan published on the hallmarks of cancer, that sort of what drives a cell to become cancerous is sort of a combination of changes in cell state where they figure out a way to become stealthy to the immune system, mm -hmm. they figure out a way to grow out of control, they figure out a way to secure uh, blood supply, um, et cetera. So as we think about advancing treatments of cancer beyond surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and start to move towards targeted therapies, how should we be thinking about, um, you know, the arsenal of weapons that we need to fight these cancer cells as they start to take on these hallmarks of cancer? And actually, that's a great segue into what I call the second revolution in cancer therapy, and that's the genomically targeted therapy realm. Born in the 1990s, 
And it really was Gleevec that launched this whole revolution in precision medicine where you identify the genetic driver that's driving that patient's specific tumor. And in fact, in this subset of leukemia called chronic myelogenous leukemia, the Philadelphia chromosome, which mm-hmm. is essentially a mutation that's caused by the fusion of BCR and ABLE, this is found in 95% of patients with CML. And so now by administering Gleevec, the five-year survival rate is north of 90 to 95%. So just a staggering advancement. There never has been a better time to be involved in the fight against cancer mm-hmm. because we are truly seeing progress. And going back to the mapping of the human genome, I mean, now we're able to look at cancers on the molecular level and somewhat to an extent of tumor agnostic. So, you know, cancer used to be identified by the organ that it was located in. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but now it's really more importantly about what's going on at the molecular level of that cell and what's causing the problem that we can, can target the cancer. Can you give us on that cellular level, like a tiny little quick description of what's actually happening with those tires, like how that works when the, is it just like a switch? The driver gets turned. It really is almost like a switch. So mutations happen in a number of different ways. One is you can have a point mutation that is activating and it turns on a gene that just starts to drive cancer growth in an uncontrolled fashion. In the case of BCR ABLE, this is the prime example of what's called a translocation. So Mm -hmm. you get a piece of one chromosome that then combines and fuses to a piece of another chromosome. And in, I believe it was the 1960s, doctors Hungerford and Noel in Philadelphia identified this abnormally short chromosome that they found in patients with CML. And they later named it the Philadelphia chromosome Mm because that's where they identified it. But this fusion, it then turns on cancer signaling pathways that turn on like an on-off switch in an uncontrolled fashion. And so then it takes a targeted therapy like imatinib or Gleevec to basically specifically target that fusion and shut down the cancer. So that's the whole precision medicine paradigm. You almost think of the first revolution was, um, let's do local procedures to cut out right. tumors. Let's take a very blunt tool and just kill all rapidly dis- dividing cells. And let's right. hope that you know we kill the cancer before we kill the, the patient. Because yeah. right? we n- normally functioning cells, healthy cells also rapidly divide, like in the epithelial la- layer and mm-hmm. the gut and hair follicles. That's why the hair exactly. falls out. Yeah, all growing. Right, they're all <laughs> yeah. growing things. And so um, now what's amazing about the second revolution is if you can figure out what's uniquely driving a cancer cell beyond it just being rapidly dividing and you can target that in some ways you're taking the cancer's strength and turning it into a weakness yeah or at least turning it into a target that's right and it's so precise and it's orally bioavailable which means that patients can just be at home taking pills daily to specifically target the tumor and have far fewer side effects than they would with the chemotherapy so if we think about it like sort of major paradigm shifts of types of tools that we're using to treat cancer. So we have the removal and then the sort of blanket treatment, and then we have the targeted treatment. Are there other paradigms that are emerging? Yeah. So the third revolution in cancer treatment is cancer immunotherapy. And so this is the whole notion of rather than targeting the cancer cells with precision bombs like targeted therapy, it's boosting the patient's own immune system 
to better fight the tumor. And so that can complement, if not synergize, mm-hmm. with other approaches. Uh, and so there's a number of different examples like checkpoint inhibitors, mm-hmm. which is the idea of releasing the breaks on immune cells that then allow the patient's own T cells to fight solid tumors. And there's been a lot of successes with that approach. There's also CAR T cell therapy, which is basically the idea of harnessing the immune cells from the patient and engineering them in a way that specifically targets the cancer. And that has been very successful in liquid tumors like leukemia. Uh, And then there's other approaches on on the leading edge like cancer vaccines, where this is the idea of boosting the patient's immune system and specifically recognizing and destroying tumor cells in a highly personalized fashion. Mm -hmm. So this whole field has really exploded just in the last decade. Gary, how are you guys thinking about the paradigm shift of, Mm -hmm. of what these tools mean when we're really changing how we approach all of the all of the treatment? In cancer, a lot of it comes down to just awareness and understanding. There's still a lot that can be done from a research standpoint, and there's a lot that can still be done from a prevention and early detection standpoint. So Jonathan mentioned um, cancer vaccines. We have a vaccine that prevents um, HPV-related cancers. Right. Uh, The vaccine will eliminate 90% of all the cancers caused by the HPV virus, uh, the number one being cervical cancer. So that truly is exciting that now we are seeing uh, vaccines arise as well. From 1991 to 2015, the mortality rate for cancer dropped 27%. And that was without the tools, the research tools that we've been speaking of. Uh, Most of that was due to prevention and early detection, a significant decrease in cigarette smoking. And we think that between 2015 and 2035 that we can reduce the mortality on cancer an additional 40%. That seems... In addition to the 27% that has already occurred. That's incredible. And we we actually think that that's a a realistic goal based upon the analysis that, that we have done. And there are some cancers that are still really tough um, that we have to do even more work on. But, you know, we believe that we're entering into a phase to where the, a lot of the cancers and the most common cancers uh, will be able to more or less be managed like a chronic disease going forward, you know, if they can't be cured. Can we uh, talk a second about uh, screening? Because uh, it's obviously such an important component. Many cancers, if caught early enough, are effectively curable. What are the cancers that we can effectively screen for that we should spend time um, making sure the public is aware of. So I assume it's prostate, it's skin cancer, it's breast cancer, it's colorectal cancer. What are the other cancers that the public should say, I should be thinking about these things to get screened regularly? Or is that the limit of what we can do today? You know, unfortunately, if today, and we're, we're, we're really as a nation not doing a really great job with screening. You know, prostate cancer screening has been controversial at best. Uh, with the PSA test, and you know, and is that because the PSA test is not super reliable? Well, it's it's uh, you can get a lot of uh, false positives, mm-hmm. and when it first came out, uh, there was a 
uh, an incredible propensity to, if you had an elevated PSA, to go ahead and go right to radical prostatectomy. Right. Um, that has really changed a lot now. And if you have an elevated PSA, that doesn't necessarily mean you have prostate cancer. There's other things you can do, including a biopsy, you know, to ter- determine if you do or not. So, you know, our, our position on screening, especially around prostate, colorectal, breast, um, is all about informed decision-making. So, you know, the patient has to have the discussion with their physician and understand that there are some risks as well as some benefits to screening that's, uh, that to be done. Um, but in most cases, you know, obviously a lot more benefits than, than risks. According mm-hmm. And like Jorge said, if you can catch it early, that is absolutely key. But uh, mammography Right now, only about a 50% screening rate for mammography, you know, for breast cancer. So we Regardless have a, of age? Yes. Yeah, wow. It's a little bit higher for 55 and over, but I mean literally 53, 54%. So I thought there, that was just like you were supposed to do that. <laughs> that well, you know, there's, but that's, that gets to some of the issues, you know, around the disparities. We say women 45 and over, if they don't have a history, you know, should, be, should start their mammographies and be screened. Mm-hmm. With PSA, that now is somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 40 percent. Um, I'm happy to say with colorectal cancer, which can be prevented if you get screened, right now at the national level, based upon the 2018 data, we're right at 69 percent wow. of you know, age-eligible people being screened for colon cancer. We are just now launching in 2018. 20, uh, a campaign to really increase lung cancer screening uh, because now the, the data is fairly conclusive that with low-dose uh, spiral uh, C-scans, uh, CT, that um, you can reduce cancer deaths by about, or you can reduce mortality an opportunity to about at least 20% if people get screened, but for very specific guidelines. And the guidelines are for you know, people who smoked a pack a day, you know, for over 30 years. So patients really at risk. I mean, we don't want people going in to get a low-dose spiral CT, you know, if they don't have a history or haven't been a heavy smoker. But lung cancer is the cancer that kills the most people per year, men and women combined. So it's the, um, you know, so we think there's an opportunity there to help reduce uh, lung cancer death rates, not only through screening, but also with some of the therapies that uh, Jonathan mentioned earlier that are showing some pretty good results. I think this point that Gary's making is incredibly important. And if you look at some of the most aggressive tumor types like pancreatic adenocarcinoma, for instance, that is one where mortality rates are, are very high. But if you're able to detect early the pancreatic cancer lesion. So if it's less than five millimeters in size and still in the pancreas, the cure rate is more than 90%. Mm -hmm. That's amazing because we do think of pancreatic cancer as a death sentence. It's uniformly deadly, right? And so this notion of early screening and detection is, is just critical. There actually are efforts underway to identify, uh, precans or precancerous lesions and, compiling an atlas of these precancerous lesions to be able to identify and intervene early. And I think that's going to allow us to tackle a a more widespread number of diseases that historically have 
been very difficult to detect because with pancreatic cancer, the first time a patient presents is with back pain, and yeah. that's when perineural invasion has already happened and the uh, the tumor has already metastasized. And so, so what's the early screen for precans? Eventually, the hope would be blood okay. that you can detect these precancerous lesions. So whether it's esophageal cancer or pancreatic cancer or other aggressive tumor types, that, that would be the ultimate vision. And then there's new technologies in terms of early identification. And really the best way to cure patients is to identify these cancerous or precancerous lesions and then intervene early before the cancer has spread. So that, that's the next frontier. You talked a lot about um, the, ne- the, the, the coming next generations of therapies mm-hmm. that allow, allow us to, to target cancer you know, once it's you know, formed um, in increasingly sophisticated ways. Um, and then Gary, you just mentioned that um, you know, uh, there is a potential future where cancer becomes a chronic condition that we treat um, you know, over a lifetime versus curing it. We just manage it, we keep it at bay. To what extent is it a, a fair comparison to say we're gonna, the future of treating cancer will look something like the way we treat HIV today, where you will develop cocktails of therapies that go after the various you know, ways that cancer emerges and that patients will be on cocktails of therapy for a lifetime. Is that, is that a reasonable future? I think it's a worthwhile goal. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the statistics are sobering because more than half of patients who present with cancer present with advanced or late-stage disease. And so it's already metastasized or spread to other parts of the body. And so what do we do about that? And that's even with these increased early detection capabilities that we've been developing. That's right. Given advanced disease is the way it is in terms of the, the prevalence at presentation, what other approaches can we take? The fourth revolution in cancer therapy, I believe has to do with a brand new understanding in the way cancer behaves. We historically have been spending a lot of time digging into the genes and the genetic drivers in chromosomal DNA. Dr. Paul Michel and other scientists at UCSD have identified these circular DNA that are outside of the chromosomes. Mm -hmm. So in cancer cells, these circular DNA are driving the growth, recurrence, and resistance of cancer cells in a way that's very different from what we've understood over the past few decades. They've actually found, they're almost like plasmids in bacteria where in cancer cells, and these aren't found in healthy cells, by the way. And so if we're able to identify and drug these circles, which by the way, happen in more than half of all solid tumor types. So it's really quite pervasive. It's this really sneaky mechanism that mm-hmm. cancer has been using to evade the different therapies. And in fact, targeted therapy actually exacerbates the growth of these circles. Do these uh, circles of DNA, do they, are they essentially um, sort of incomplete translocations? Is that how they form? Something breaks off a chromosome and doesn't get re- reintegrated yeah, into chromosomal DNA? Yeah, the mechanism is actually still uh, being understood, but these, um, the cancer cells are actually able to uh, form these circles and relinearize in the form of HSRs, which are homogeneous staining regions. Mm-hmm. And so HSRs have been known, known about uh, since the 1970s. And in fact, these circles were characterized as double minutes, 
Uh, and, and so people knew about them. They just didn't really study them to understand what they were doing in terms of driving cancer. Wow. So I think if we can take a new approach to drugging these circles, we might be able to complement targeted therapies, chemotherapies, and cancer immunotherapy. And, and really, that would represent just a fundamental paradigm shift. It reminds me of, like, the Ghostbusters things. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, those, like if you can get, get them all together yeah. and, like, just no, zap that fucker. You, can't, yeah. you can't cross the streams, Yes, though. can't cross, yeah. can't yes, cross exactly. the streams. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're making incredible advances in screening uh, for cancer. We're making incredible advances in um, um, how we understand and hopefully ultimately treat advanced cancers. Gary, how do we think about how we make sure that these therapies are ultimately available for patients. You know, for me, one of the things that is um, most perplexing about this, these coming revolutions is it's, it's going to require sort of a systemic change to absorb all of this innovation, right? Because these therapies, you know, they, they cost a lot of money to discover. Um, some of these advanced therapies cost a lot of money to manufacture. When you do manufacture them, a lot of these things are end-of-one type therapies where they're personalized therapies for the patient. So how we think about regulating and approving these therapies is going to require some, some mind shift. Um, and once you get through all of that, you still have to find a way to make sure that they can get delivered to patients, right? So some of these things are oral, which is great, but some of, the thing, some of these therapies like CAR-T therapies need to be taken from the patient, uh, reprogrammed, grown up, and sent back to the patient. So centers have to have the basically the logistical capability to even do that. Right. You can't pick that up at a Walgreens. Yeah. You yeah. can't pick that up at a corner pharmacy. And so yeah. um, then one step beyond that, you also have to think about, well, how do we make sure that, you know, uh, we can pay for all of this? Because these therapies are also going to be expensive. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's something that we're really focused on a lot today, Jorge, because you know, still half the people that present have, uh, the, you know, metastases, the, 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 the cancer is already spread. You know, why is that? And why is that happening? And uh, when you look at, uh, you know, at the U.S. and you look at uh, disparities that exist, social determinants of health, and just plus cancer is a very frightening word, and people are still very scared when they hear that word. Yeah, you have a resistance. Absolutely. And, And that's one reason, you know, people... You know, even if they have access to medical care, sometimes they're afraid to go because they're afraid they might have cancer. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think that this is so important to get the word out there that the sooner you go, the higher the probability and likelihood that something can be done, you know, to, to help manage that cancer. So, uh, I mean, that problem exists today um, as far as the disparities. And then if you look, as you said, about what's coming, it's going to be even further compounded if we don't really start addressing from a policy standpoint some of the issues that have to, to occur. You know, people do not have either access to good care. A lot of people do not have insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and cancer uh, can, can be a devastating disease uh, as far as wiping out people's finances. If you take the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion together, we can see differences in mortality rates, you know, for cancer and in in early diagnosis. So, you know, I think as a country, we have to figure out, you know, some way to come together and create a new paradigm. And this is not only going to benefit cancer patients, but it's going to benefit, you know, anyone that's accessing the healthcare system. I think technology can play a huge role 
in this and, you know, helping people in rural areas get access to uh, expertise from, from cancer centers. We're all a victim of our current system and we're trying to look at, okay, how can we within our current system make this work and build capacity and build room for everything that's that's coming down the pike. Um, and I think we just need to step back and say, how as a society do we need to look at this to where that you know we can ensure that people have access to the treatment. We have the right policies in place. Where you live should not determine if you live. With the exciting things that are happening, you know, if they arrive and then the majority of the population can't benefit from it, then that's that's unacceptable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like very much the idea that we need to look at the system fresh and not try and cram all these things into the existing system necessarily, but think start from kind of scratch. Jonathan, you've been a part of building a number of cancer treatment companies. What do you think from the company building side, you know, the manufacturing and the scaling? Like, how do you also think we need to sort of start fresh or do you think there's ways we can adjust the system to get these therapies manufactured, scaled, delivered there? Well, I think that's actually underway and it, it's happening. I mean, we're not quite following Moore's law, but mm-hmm. uh, I think the progress is being made. It's really the coupling of policy with the science where the magic happens. Mm. You mentioned Mary Lasker. Mm-hmm. It was when she teamed up with Dr. Sidney Farber that mm-hmm. the magic happened mm-hmm. back in the 40s and 50s. Taking a holistic approach uh, to understanding the patient and their context, I actually would posit to you that a low-tech approach of thinking even about just nutrition and Mm -hmm. the foods that we eat, where we eat three or more meals a day. And so the foods that we eat can be as impactful to our health as the drugs that we take. And so there's a number of really interesting initiatives underway in what I call the the fifth revolution, which is metabolic therapy. Hmm. And I think nutrition is actually a key part. And so it could be low-tech types of applications like uh, whole food plant-based diets or low-calorie restriction uh, ketogenic uh, diets or targeting glucose and glutamine dependency of cancer cells while boosting the uh, metabolic efficiency of uh, healthy cells, um, or even cutting edge techniques. Like we're just scratching the surface of our understanding of the microbiome. Right. And the microbiome is hugely impacted by the drugs that we take and the foods that we eat. And so I think if we go back to the basics and, and really try and understand the patient holistically from high tech and low tech frames of reference, I think that's where additional insights, in addition to the policy objectives, is how we we cure patients and the system. I I could not agree with you more. And just to go a little bit lower tech, (laughs) today in the U.S., 45% of the cancer deaths are caused by modifiable risk factors. You mean lifestyle, essentially, when you say modifiable. Absolutely, modifiable, things that we are in charge of that we can control. If you look at tobacco, which causes a third of all cancer deaths in the United States, you look at uh, healthy eating. This is not high-tech healthy eating. This is just today Mm -hmm. what we know, eating healthy. 
you know, exercising regularly, getting your screenings, things that you're in charge of, you know, at least environmentally, making sure you're not living in a house that has asbestos and those things. You can reduce your risk of getting this disease by close to 50%. That is amazing. I'd like to get in on this low-tech competition. (laughs) We should wear sunblock every day, correct? (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Okay, yes, every single day. What is that, like $3 at at CVS? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's so important. And that's what I call low-tech. Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, the thinking was that you were either lucky or you were not lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you got cancer. You yeah. know, there wasn't a lot you could do about it. Uh, but today, we know there's so many things you can do as an individual to reduce your risk. And then coupled with these revolutions that are occurring in research, there's uh, incredible opportunity you know, down the pike to really have even a greater impact. Yeah, and the ability to combine most or all of the revolutions that we've talked about, mm-hmm. that really is the way where I believe that we can erase cancer. And so that that's really exciting. So uh, Jonathan, uh, you just mentioned the mission uh, to erase cancer, which is in the name of your company in Araska. That's right. Uh, which is central, of course, to the mission for the American Cancer Society as well. If we could prognosticate for one second, uh, what inning are we in to achieving the cure for uh-huh. cancer? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think... We're probably in inning three or four. And my rationale for that is that I think we've made great progress. And and actually, if you look at the rate of progress from the 1890s to today, it actually has been accelerating, right? Mm -hmm. So each of these revolutions, actually, it's taking less time to reach each revolution than it did the previous one. So I do think we're accelerating, but there's still more work that needs to be done. And so uh, I, I, I'm excited that, that the game ahead in terms of the, the, later, the middle and later innings, there's still more work to be done. But based on the rate of progress, uh, I'm very hopeful and optimistic. Gary, how about you? Um, you know, we're careful in the way we use that word as far as if we'll, if we'll cure it or if we'll be able to control it. I think if you rephrase your question and say, what inning are we in as far as being able to really control cancer, Mm -hmm. I would say probably top of the fifth. We're accelerating, uh, which is, is, is truly exciting. And, you know, and, you know, I think the, as I said before, I think society needs to be aware of the progress that is being made and of the hope for the future because it, it, it has never been brighter to really, you know, get a handle on this on this disease. Well, thank you so much for everything you guys are doing to get us to the end of that game. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Go Red Sox. Gotta wipe that out. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio newsletter at a16z.com/newsletter, and of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.